It is a, it's really a privilege to be here with you today. We're excited uh, to be in Locust. We've heard all about you and uh, kind of kept up with the reports on and off of what's happening in this place. I look out and uh, I see so many people who are younger than me and that encourages me. That really encourages me because I was there when the ark settled on Mount Ararat and uh, you know, I, I knew all of Moses' kids. So uh, it's just great to see youth in the building. And I, uh, just a few moments ago, there was kind of a lull, and I heard the kids screaming down the hallway there. That's good. That's, the sound. That's just the sound of life in a church. I've been in a few churches in the last few months where there are no kids screaming, and, uh, and there's no new birth taking place. And it's so exciting to be in a place like this today. And so uh, nice to be among friends, too. Daniel and Ginger are very special to us. Uh, when he left his last pastorate, and as the Lord was leading him here, I actually was, for six weeks, I stepped in, as I often do in this role, as an interim and worked with their board in, in taking steps forward. So we've actually, we've pastored the same church. Uh, I only lasted six weeks. You did a little bit better than me. Well, NCAG is just the, the North Carolina Assemblies of God, 260 churches across the state. We exist for three things, really. We're here to empower ministers. And part of what I do, wherever I go, I'm, I'm one of these two things. We're either empowering ministers, we're equipping churches, or we're engaging generations. That's our mission. That's our core. And so in these last couple of years, as I've stepped into a full-time role and are working with our district superintendent, we're in different places every week doing different things. I want to say thank you especially to Pastor Daniel for just allowing me a little bit of grace. I had to step into a sticky situation last week, so he adjusted the schedule. And so you started a new series last week, and I'm interrupting the series but uh, just so gracious to, to let us do that great outcome last week. We're excited about it. When we leave here this afternoon, we're stepping into another situation where a church is in a troubled time. But we believe we have a God-sent solution that's going to move them to a brand new place. So that's kind of what life looks like for me. How's life look for you? Great? Good. 17 of us are really optimistic about the future. And um, I'm praying for the rest of you today. But thank you again, and thank you to Pastor Andrew uh, and Kelly with Greater Life uh, in, in Matthews. We are so excited about their vision and how that's being worked out through the team that they've, uh, that they've surrounded themselves with. Great things happening, really great things. Well, I'm going to take you to a mountain today. I'm going to take you to Mount Moriah in the Scripture, and it is in Genesis chapter 22 if you want to find your way there. If not... And you just trust me, uh, the words are going to go up on the screen, so you'll see the text when it, when it comes. I want to take you back to the summer of 79. How many of you were not born in 1979? Okay. Uh, the good, this will be great. I'll be sharing some things with you that you missed. Those of you who have wondered, what have I missed in life? Well, you missed 79. I was rolling down the, the, the interstate yesterday or day before. I can't, we were headed for, for Asheville, and a guy had a... a a Pinto, a 1973 Pinto runabout on a trailer. And half the room said, I have no idea what that is. It was basically a, a driving gas bomb with the tank at the back. If you got hit, it would blow up. But anyways, Pintos kind of disappeared in Vegas and that kind of thing. But it threw me back to the 1970s. And in the 70s, I was a teenager. And in the summer of 79, I was home from my second year in college. So I was 20 years old. And I was a tweener, and by tweener, I mean I was raised at, in, a, in a great mega church in, in Iowa. My dad was the pastor there, and so I was engaged with youth ministry and everything else, always involved in everything that was going on. Went off to college, and when you go off to college and half of the youth group stays home, chooses not to go away to college, but they kind of stay home, and, and everyone else goes off to college, the two groups never really mesh again. And so when you come home in the summer, you're a tweener. And yet you're just not connected with the life of, of the people who you went to school with. And you're only home for 12 weeks in the summer, so you really don't connect. And that's where I was. So I was really surprised when after my sophomore year I came home, I was immediately embraced by all of the homies. I mean, they, they loved me. They wanted me to come to everything. They were really I mean, smiley and friendly, and even people who didn't like me 
in high school years, all of a sudden they had a place for me. And they were planning this trip. Their group was planning this trip to go out to Colorado and climb Mount Elbert. Now, Mount Elbert is the tallest. It's the tallest uh, mountain on the continental United States, or I should say in Colorado it is. It's a picture of it. And so we were going to go climb Mount Elbert. And I love stuff like that. So I was really excited about it. And they wanted me to join them. And so I was really gassed about that. And then somewhere along the line, it began to occur to me why they wanted me to come. I had a van. And they didn't. And so I was their favorite son for a while. But it was all right. Was, it was all right. So here we were. Here we were, you know, a few college students and, a, and about three or four hippies. And um, it was just a real odd collection, a real strange collection of people, oddballs, going down the highway. Long drive out to the staging area in Leadville, Colorado. But we had a great time. Oh, and right after the climbing Mount Elbert, we were going to go to this, this uh, Jesus festival out there. It was kind of like a, a Christian Woodstock called Jesus Rocky Mountain. And so we were, we, were all, we were all jamming. We were ready to go. This was going to be awesome. So we arrived at Leadville and slept overnight down at the base of the mountain in tents and got up the next morning and uh, started to climb. I hadn't really thought much about what it would be like. I mean, when you're 20 years old, you're basically in shape. I'd been a runner for most of my, uh, my high school years. And so I, I felt like I was in pretty good shape. This would be okay. And we started climbing that mountain. I didn't really stop to think about what it would feel like to climb up to 14,400 feet. Um, no preparation, no training, nothing. Just, hey, we're going to go climb the mountain. You know, when you're young and you're dumb, you do things. Uh, you do impossible things. And so it's like, we're, we're going to do this. And I will never forget the climb. As long as I live, I'll never forget that climb. I've done stuff since, endurance things since, that have been way beyond that. But I'll never forget that climb. Because it pushed me to the absolute maximum of what my, my lungs and my body would do. But at first, it was just the, it was these lush um, pine needle forests that we, we walked through. And then the, the, it changed to the hardwoods. But the, the floor, uh, just the floor of the forest as we're working our way up the side of that mountain, it was so gorgeous. It was pristine, the rivers were, or the, the little runoffs from the, from the mountains, not little at all, but the, they were crystal clear, and they were just roaring, and they were so cold, so cold. If you put your foot in for a minute, it turned blue. I mean, just that ice-cold mountain water. And then we broke through the, the tree line at about 12,000 feet, and it was like we were in a different world. We were already breathing hard, but once you got to about... 11, 5, 12, 13,000 feet of elevation, all of a sudden, I, you would have never convinced me of this at the bottom, but all of a sudden, two, three steps, you had to stop, lean over, catch your breath, let your heart slow down, take about three more steps. And the higher you got, the harder it was. Incredibly, incredibly difficult. And then we're on the summit. You're literally standing on the tallest mountain in Colorado, and you, only, I think in the U.S., only Mount Whitney's higher. You're standing up there on, on the top, and it is absolutely gorgeous. You turn 360 degrees, and you look. Everything is, is below you, and it's magnificent. And we hit it on a clear day. So we had climbed up over the rock and, and up over snow to get to the, finally, the, this is in the middle of the summer, finally get to the top absolute amazing experience. I'll never forget it. There's a lot of stories I could tell you about that crazy trip, but all of them pale in comparison with just climbing the mountain. It marked me. It taught me. It tested me. And that's what mountains do. They test you. They test you. Every life, every life has mountains. We've all got our mountains. Not all of us climb those mountains. Some of us run away from them. Some of us avoid them at all costs. But every life has mountains. To scale the great summits, you have to push yourself beyond yourself. To climb the mountains, you need a mountaineer's faith. The Apostle Paul says, I reach out to what lies ahead. That's a mountaineer's faith. 
I strive towards the prize. I want to reach the prize. I want to, I want to grasp what it is that God has me. This is the Apostle Paul. He has this mountaineering faith. Faith that reaches out to what's ahead. Faith that embraces pain as part of the process. Faith that accepts risks. Faith that runs towards adventure. Faith that bears the strain of your muscles when they're begging you to stop. That's a mountaineer's faith. want you all to have mountaineer's faith. But there's another kind of faith that I'll touch on today, and that's called flatlanders' faith. Flatlanders. Flatlanders know nothing about mountaineering faith because they settle for scenic lives, kind of docile and tame. They live in sight of the snow-capped mountains. They can see it all around them, and they appreciate them for what they are. But they'll never climb them. For the flatlander, life is predictable. Life is safe. They see everything coming from a long way off. They've got it all plotted plotted out. But they never really live. They never tackle the mountains. Well, we're going to talk about Abraham this morning because he awoke one morning to a mountain he never saw coming. And we read about it in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. I'm going to stop right there for a moment and just tell you right now, this is one of the worst stories in the Bible. There's nothing pleasant about this story. There's nothing that... there's nothing about this story that makes you want to even get close to it. Wouldn't you agree with me that that is one of the most horrible things that could ever be suggested? Take your son up a mountain and offer him there as a burnt offering. How many of you already are just checking out on the Christian faith right now? Because it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's not a mom in this room who's going to say, yes, Lord. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had called him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. There's the mountain. He saw it from afar. Then Abram said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So both of them, uh, they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God told him about, Abram built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I told you this is, this is just one of the worst stories you'll read anywhere in the world. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. A disturbing, terrifying story. You see, the Bible hasn't been sanitized. It's the telling of what happened what God did, and sometimes we are given a perspective where we're able to look ahead in the Scripture and see why he did what he did. 
that doesn't erase kind of the terror and at times the scratching of our heads saying, what was God driving at here? You know, the, the Bible says that the Old Testament is given to us to really illustrate New Testament truth. And so all of these things are given, the Bible says, literally as examples for us. And so as we look into what is a disturbing story, I've been, I've been doing this a long time, okay? I'm 40 years in the ministry, and I've preached to Abraham backwards and forwards, and I am not comfortable with this story. I'm not, I'm not mad at God. I'm not accusing him of, of anything. I'm simply saying that when we look to this text in the Scripture, it's disturbing. But it also has a powerful truth encased in it that we have to grasp. Mount Moriah in the Bible is no Mount Everest or Mount Elbert. Mount Moriah in the, in the Scripture is really little more than a ridge. It stands out, but it's, it's really a hill. Abraham climbed up Moriah's gentle slope. It wasn't a long climb. It was a short climb. But make no mistake about it, climbing Mount Everest would be child's play compared to what Abraham had to endure that day. We know the final outcome here of Abraham's tortured climb. A sacrificial ram was provided at the very last moment. And though the scene at the summit is truly awful, I, I think we look at this story in the scripture, and because we know the outcome, we look at it through a, a softer lens. And I've already tried to set it up. Don't do that. We need to look at the text in the scripture and recognize it for what it is. It's tough. It's awful. It's hard. If you're Abraham on that terrible day when in obedience to God you climb Mount Moriah, you're climbing, you're living your worst nightmare. If you're Abraham that day and you're climbing, you're climbing up the you're taking and binding the very son that God had promised for so long that's given to you well past the years where you or your wife were really, especially your wife, able to bear a son. And God has now fulfilled the promise and he's given you that bouncing baby boy. And now he's 12, 13, 14 years old. And you're taking him up the side of a mountain where you're going to stab him in the chest or cut his throat on an altar and burn him as an offering. And though you believe that God can and that, and that God will raise him from the dead, still, you've got to put in the knife. And you've got to be willing to watch the light go out of his eyes. And you've got to be willing to light the fire to reduce your boy to ashes. That's a horrible story. You tell me a harder mountain to climb than Mount Moriah. I can't find it in all of the scripture. This is the Bible's seminal story of faith. See, later on we read in Hebrews, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. We begin to understand what's going on here. Does God want Abraham to kill Isaac? No. But God wants to test Abraham. He wants to put him in a situation where he will be stretched beyond all of his natural boundaries. And you see, real faith is only known by its testing. We want everything to go good, right? That's bad English. We want everything to go well. I've been in the South for a while. I'm developing a whole new language. <clears throat> Born and raised in Eastern Canada, it's taken a long time, but I'm starting to think differently now. <laughs> We really want everything in life to go well, don't we? As a matter of fact, a lot of us come to faith saying, Jesus can make my life go well. I'm here to rock your world today and tell you, Jesus steps into your life and he's going to make a little bit of a mess. I think it was C.S. Lewis who uh, explained it this way. He said, when Jesus first came into my life, when he first came into my life, he, he said, I'm going to do a little bit of remodeling. And I was okay with that because I thought that he would just clean up a little bit here and straighten up a little bit there. But he said, then all of a sudden, he began tearing out the walls and pulling down the ceiling. And finally, he said to me, I'm not building a little cabin here. I'm building a mansion in which I will dwell. But nobody wants the renovation. Nobody wants it. Renovation's messy. This looks really nice today here. 
I mean, I really like this. I'll bet it was a mess a year ago. It's kind of cool to be standing right here because it, when Daniel told me this was a former skating rink, I got it immediately. I looked, I looked at the, the shape of the, the trusses and I thought, yeah, I get it. Isn't it interesting? This is a place where people used to come to just go round and round and round in circles, but now it's a place where people come to go in a direction that will lead them ultimately to eternal life in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? This is a place now for people who can find direction. It used to be a place where people just went round and round and round in circles. Faith, real faith, is only known by testing. And I fear that we traffic in a different kind of faith altogether, a flatlander faith, a spectator faith, faith without trial, faith without trouble, faith from a distance, faith without the test. I think we've installed escalators on the mountain with a stop-off halfway up with a coffee bar. And I love coffee bars. We take Sunday guided tours of the mountains, bloodless tours that make us all feel good. And it's followed up with a tidy little lunch. And then, you know, the rest of the day's off. Have we really climbed that mountain where faith alone sustains us and produces an unshakable trust in God who first sent Abraham up Moriah, Mount Moriah with Isaac. And then later on, Jesus up the same hill to die within a stone's throw of the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. Let me just say it a different way. If the greatest test of your faith right now is your boss, your rotten boss, if the greatest test of your faith right now is your mother-in-law or your father-in-law, it's probably your mother-in-law, but if the, if the greatest, I have the greatest mother-in-law in all of the world. Do you know that behind every, uh, be, be, behind every successful man, there's a surprised mother-in-law? It's the truth. I have a wonderful mother-in-law, but sometimes, you know, we get all wrapped up in our family drama and the big deal, the biggest test in our faith, oh, I have to live in this, this mother-in-law, that mother-in-law, or, or all that family drama. If that's the greatest step, best test of your faith, or maybe the greatest test of your faith is your paycheck or how small your paycheck is right now. If these are considered to be great tests, we have to really challenge ourselves and say, have we really put ourselves to the test? Or have we become such flatlanders that just dealing with little things seems like we're dealing with mountains? I don't say this to discourage you, but to sharpen our soft view of the scripture and to find those hard edges where faith actually makes a difference in how we think and how we speak and how we live. Where faith, moments of faith, where we take that step. And Daniel spoke a moment ago about being a giver and stepping out sometimes, taking a step of faith right into kind of no man's land. You've given more than you even have. And you put yourself in a situation where you can see God move. Until you take those steps, you don't develop your faith. Because you see, taking those steps, those big steps, it's like exercising muscles. It builds muscle. It builds strength. It builds spiritual endurance. But if we live always in the safe place and we don't put ourselves out there, you say, well, I'm not going to engage really very much this church because I really got hurt in another church. Well, you're going to, your muscles, your spiritual muscles are going to wither and you are going to die even in the midst of a church circumstance. You, you've got to put yourself out there again. Well, I got hurt. So what? Is there anyone in this room who hasn't been hurt? Okay, let me ask this. How many of you feel like you've been hurt the most? Okay, yeah, thanks, man. I knew there'd be one. I knew, and it's, and it's not you, because the one who's been hurt the most, I can't even lift my hand. I just, I just, you know, it's, just, it's too painful for me to even, even go there, right? I mean, you know, you look across this room, all of us have got hurts. We've all been in difficult circumstances. Those aren't the big mountains. We're just used to living on the flatlands. So there's a lot of different ways to get to the top of this mountain story in the scripture. And I, I have to confess, when I look at the scripture, sometimes I see it through my own lens, my own grid. How about you? 
I, I see it through my own circumstances. I'm not the young man that I was when I went to Colorado to climb Mount Elbert at 20 years of age. I'm not even midlife anymore. That's really hard to take. Those of you who say, I just, I just don't know if I can, I don't know if I can survive 40. 40 is nothing. <laughs> For me, it's not midlife anymore. Halftime now is over. <laughs> The clock is running down. Not, I'm not counting up. I'm counting down. And I, I look at life this way. I am now in, and I look at it. I look like it too. I'm in my third trimester right now of life. Third trimester. The kids are grown and, and gone. That's wonderful. God love them. So glad they're happy. I'm, but it, it's, it's different. My wants are a whisper now. They used to be a shout. Anyone else reach that point where it's birthday time or it's Christmas and your kids, they, what, what do you want for Christmas, Dad? I don't want a thing. I really don't want anything. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm having a hard time when it comes to these special events because, you know, they'll ask and I'll say, ah, don't worry, I don't want anything. Then it becomes, then it becomes, yeah, I've got three daughters and those three girls and their sons-in-law and all the grands, they, now they're, they're on a mission. They're going to find out what is that you really want. And every year, I'm you know, kind of, what is it that I really want? What I really want, they can't afford to give me. So, <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great to say, well, I'd like Super Bowl tickets. And, uh, you know, I mean, outside of that, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm at a different place in my life right now. And my goals are, are simple and clear. I'm not necessarily bored or anxious. I'm not in a hurry. I love my wife. I, I love my life. I didn't introduce her, did I? This is my wife, Sherry. And uh, I could tell you all kinds of great things about her, but we're in the mountains right now. So <laughs> I think Abraham may have felt the same way I feel right now. Late in life, God gave him the longed-for son. And I think that's enough. If you're 80 years old, no, no, wait, he was 100. If you're 100 years old and you've got a newborn, I think you got all the adventure you need in life right there. I, I think you've just arrived at, you know, kind of like, you know, there's my mountain. And God said, no. <laughs> he had it. He, he dwelt in tents. And I don't like living in tents, but, you know, he dwelt in tents all his life. So I'm sure he'd made that kind of comfortable and it was peaceful. Didn't have money problems. He had no warring enemies around him. He'd lived beyond a century. He'd survived, but few had, could survive. And, Abraham might have said, you know, life is really good right now. Life is really good. And yet in Abraham's rest, God brings a test. I don't want to make anyone here frightened, afraid. Don't want anybody scared. But it could be if you're in a place of rest, God wants to bring a test. Because, you see, he's never through developing faith in us. Never, never through. And that test always brings us to a core question. God puts everyone to a different test for the same reason. He wants us to trust him. This is the question of God. Do you trust me? The question born of difficulty. Do you trust me? The thing you're going through, do you trust me? Do you trust me absolutely? And you see, when life levels out and peace and calm prevail, faith that was once forged in the heat and the fire, faith loses its edge. It loses its edge. We begin to trust in life itself, and we forget about the mountains and the struggles and the risks and the threats. We develop a flatlander faith that sees everything coming, that feels safe and managed, demands absolutely nothing extraordinary. As a matter of fact, the word that best describes flatlander faith is ordinary. Ordinary. But God said, take your son, your only son, and life was suddenly anything but ordinary for Abraham. If you've studied Abraham at all, 
you know that the key to understanding Abraham and the God-Abraham connection and his calling and everything in life, the key to understanding Abraham is found in where, where Abraham is first introduced to us in the 15th chapter of Genesis where it simply says, and Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. It's among one of the most powerful statements in Holy Writ. It was on that day both a terrible and a wonderful thing. Abraham believed God in the midst of a request that was beyond the pale. And except for his faith in God's character, in God's purposes, in God's promises, in God's power, even the power to raise Isaac from the ashes of the altar, except for that faith, how could Abraham take another step? The only thing, Abraham wasn't insane. The only thing that in any way speaks to mitigate what was Abraham thinking when he took his son up the side of that mountain? What was, what in the world, the only thing that mitigates the story for me at all is this. Abraham believed God. Abraham said, I don't understand it. It makes no sense whatsoever. It seems to be destructive. It seems to be throwing away what God has given to me. But God has spoken this command to me and I believe him. And it justifies what he did. How could a loving father ever begin that climb without knowledge that at the top something was going to happen? Because you see, if you look at it in the natural, at the top, things weren't going to get better. It would be infinitely worse. And it would cost him, it would cost him everything he held dear. Can't you see what's going on in Abraham's mind? We, we like to think that Abraham was like, I believe God. I know that he's going to supply. And so we're marching right up the mountain. I don't believe that anybody's wired that way. I believe when we're in the midst of the fight and when we are tested and when we're pushed, I think Abraham's taken a, taken a step saying, I believe God. And in the very next step, there's a voice that says, what if this is all some sick nightmare? What if, what if, what if, what if, if, what if the ashes won't rise from the dead on that charred altar? What if, what if when, it all, when it all is over and when the ashes finally cool on the top of the mountain, what if nothing happens at all and you're sitting up there, a fool, an absolute fool, who took his own son's life? How could, how could Abraham hold on to his sanity in the midst of so much insanity? Abraham believed God it will hold you. Have you looked around you these days and said, I felt a little insanity this morning when it cost 65 bucks to fill the gas tank. Insane. By the way, in 1979, when I was a tweener, gas had just peaked. It had peaked, and we were all going nuts over 89 cents a gallon. And don't laugh at me. There's some of you who can remember when it was 23 cents. You're just, you're just not saying that's me, but how could he hold on to his sanity in the midst of so much insanity? You look around at what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our world. You look at what's happening in the Ukraine today. You look at what's happening in, in economies that are cratering. You look at what's happening in epidemiology now and, and the, the whole COVID thing that we've come through. You look in the midst of all of this. And how do you hold on to your sanity in the midst of so much insanity? Let me take you to another level here. <laughs> Abraham's thinking, what am I going to tell Sarah? Sherry, correct me if I'm wrong, but we never see Abraham and Sarah together in the text again. And when she dies in the scripture, she dies and Abraham's in another place, isn't he? We don't know for sure what happened. But when she died, Abraham went to her. I'm just wondering. When Abraham came down off that mountain, if Sarah said... You did what? Oh, you don't understand. It was great. it was great. God provided the ram, you know, and we killed the ram and we offered up the burnt offering. It was an amazing. You did what? You took my son. You said this was a Royal Ranger camping trip. 
You took my son and your intention was to offer him as a burnt offering to God? You did what? Who knows what happened when Abraham came down off of the mountain? And we can't read too much into what the scripture's not telling us. What if he killed the only, his, own, his only son and God was silent and would never, what if, what if, have you ever struggled over what if? It keeps you from taking the step of faith, doesn't it? What if, what if, that'll keep you off the mountain every time. Have you ever been challenged with something God expected or something he commanded or something God planted deep within you, but you were paralyzed by what if? What if? Perhaps you never even started the journey. Maybe you've just listened to the voice of reason, always the voice of reason. Asking Satan's most ancient question, and Christians do this all the time. We, we, we ask the same question that we find at the very beginning of all of these things, which Satan asked. The very first question in the Bible was Satan asking this, has God really said isn't it interesting today in our culture? That's exactly what's being asked everywhere. You Christians, really? Did God really say that? Our entire world, our entire culture, the enemy himself works to undermine our faith in what God has said. Did God really say? I have to ask myself, how often have I refused the test that might have proved me or improved me? made me the test that would have invited God's greatest demonstration of his power, power beyond the limits of my mind. You see, God moves and acts in the supernatural and he asks us to join him there. So God is working in the supernatural and he says, come join me there. And how do we get there? We get there only by taking steps of faith. So God, I want to say it again. God is working in the supernatural and he asks us to join us by taking steps of faith. We ask the supernatural God to come move into the natural realm. We say, God, come. And here's what we say. Dwell with me. Abide with me. I want you close, Lord. I want you here, Lord. And the Lord says, let's go climb a mountain. Let's go climb a mountain. And perhaps you see it now. Flatland faith says to a supernatural God, come be my natural friend and my natural, come live in my natural world. And God is saying, no, come live in my supernatural power. It's a different realm and it's a different way of looking at life. It's in the aftermath of Mount Moriah that Abraham gives God a name based on his character. So it's all over and Isaac is unbound from the altar now and the ram has been offered and Abraham in absolutely, um, absolute amazement says, every name that I know for you is now being supplanted by a name that comes out of this. I know this. I'm going to call you now forever. Jehovah Jireh, which literally means on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. I'm giving you a new name, God, because of what you've just done and what you've just shown me. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Please hold on to that, uh, that thought, okay, as we, as we move forward and move towards a close here. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. How do you get up to the mount of the Lord? You've got to climb. But on the mount of the Lord will be provided Jehovah Jireh. Many of us learned this name for God by way of a little chorus fashioned back again about 1970s or before. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. This girl was raised in church. Anyone else? Jehovah Jireh. Remember that? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. His grace is sufficient. Oh, let me give you all the words. Okay, because it's in my memory bank. I can remember. I can't remember the Bible sometimes, but man, I get song lyrics down. Right? Yeah. We will, we will. I'll just, I see, I rest my case. I rest my case. But we used to sing it, 
and it was a it was a boom chuck boom chuck boom chuck Jewish type chorus. And those were really cool for a while and in vogue in the churches. And so we sang, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. I'm going to sing it. Uh, I'm going to say it like we didn't always sing it this way, but here's the way it worked. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. His grace is sufficient for me. My God shall supply all your, all my needs according to his riches and glory. He will give his angels charge over me. Jehovah Jireh careth for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh careth for me. I, I don't want to offend anybody here. It was a celebration song. We sang it a lot in all of our churches. And I don't want to be too critical, but it was quite simply awful. It was awful on every level. It was awful for the way that it focused completely on me and completely ignored the context of the scripture from which it was taken. We do this a lot. This is the day, remember this? This is the day that the Lord has made. Nobody stops to go back and say, where is that in scripture? It's talking about the day of the Lord. And if you read about the day in the Lord, the day of the Lord in the scripture, it's what it's talking about the cataclysmic explosions of the end times. But we just take a phrase and we lift it out of its context. Now, I'm, there's nothing wrong with Jehovah Jireh. It's fine. Sing it. It's, it's got a lot of truth in it. It's fine. But the context that we sang it in has almost nothing to do with the scripture it was taken from. So when I say it was awful, I, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. It, it was awful also in the way that it would string together a lot of other scriptures to make a thoroughly, a thoroughly modern point. And that point was this. It's all about me and God providing for me and supernatural God step into my natural world and take care of me. You see, Jehovah Jireh speaks to God's provision a top amount of sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh foreshadows Jesus, the Son of God, going to the cross on the same hill in Judea within a stone's throw from where this son was going to be offered up, the only son. You see the parallels? The Old Testament is written to demonstrate the new. The only son is offered up as a sacrifice, and God later on, offers up his own son, carries out the sacrifice for you and for me. See, Mount Moriah is identified for us by Solomon who built his temple there. And this is where Isaac placed the altar. And this is where Solomon today, if you, if you go to Jerusalem and you go, into, you go up on the Temple Mount, under the Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque, there is, it is built over the rock or the stone. This, this is traditionally the place that is identified. It's identified as the place where the sacrifice would have taken place. And if you could stand there, and you can't, the Muslims won't allow you in, but if you could stand there in this place or even stand on that rock and take down the walls of Jerusalem as they, as they are now and the buildings of Jerusalem and see it as you could see it in the day, from that place you could stand and you could have looked less than a quarter of a mile away. You could look upon the place. If you'd remove the wall, look upon the place where Calvary took place. It's on the top of the same hill. Well, you say, well, I'm still upset about you not liking my song. Because doesn't it say, doesn't God say, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? How many of you love that text? Some of you may have that, you know, in macrame and, and uh, you know, you picked that up at a gift store and maybe it comes up on chimes on your phone every day. You know, my God's going to supply all of your need. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you. Look at the context. Philippians chapter 4. Look at the context of the scripture. To whom does God say, I'm going to supply all of your needs? Well, most of us just say, well, we Christians. No. In Philippians, Paul's writing to the Christians who have given sacrificially above and beyond. Here's the idea again. 
They took a step of faith. Paul says, no one else took care of me, but you, Philippians, you took care of me. You gave time and time again. You gave even sacrificially for me in my time of trouble, and my God shall supply all of your needs. We're so quick to turn the scripture to where it's all about us rather than someone and something that is so much bigger than us. If you expect because you believe in God that bountiful provision is going to flow your way, get ready for disappointment with God. Because he makes his promises to those who take the steps, to those who give, to those who participate, to the struggler, to the one who climbs the mountain. It's the one who says, I'm ready to, whatever, wherever you want to test me, God, I'm ready to rise up to the test. The one who will say, I'll take what's most precious to me. And Lord, even as bizarre as it sounds that you would ever require it of me, anything you've placed in my hands, I'm willing to place back in yours that your kingdom might come and that your will might be done. See, God's provision, a, a demonstration of his power and glory waits on the mountain, on the mountain of God, it will be provided. Jehovah Jireh, that's what it means, on the mountain. It's for people who will walk in faith. And I realize I may have just scared somebody to death here this morning. You say, well, it sounds like if I'm really going to become a stronger Christian, then it sounds like I'm going to have to go, you know, top gun, you know, into the danger zone here. I mean, you know, I, I've got to, and I realize that dates me. How many of you didn't even know there was a movie called Top Gun? Okay, got you. But danger zone, you know, you're, you're talking about dangerous living, and you're, you're talking about stuff that scares me, and I was looking for a nice, safe Jesus. I wanted a nice, safe Jesus who would just kind of step into my life and take care of me. That's not the Jesus we find in Scripture. He's the Jesus who calls us to climb the mountain. He calls us out of our comfort zones. He calls us into new experiences. He calls us into taking risks. He calls us into taking steps. Some of them are really easy and some of them are really simple. And every once in a while, we'll face one that's really difficult. I'm not talking about an Abraham. I don't find another Abraham story again like that in the scripture except for God sending his own son. But he will call you into some difficult places, difficult steps, difficult conversations, difficult decisions. But you see, on the mount of God, when you climb and you say, okay, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm going to take the next step. I, don't, I, I, I can't put it together in my mind, but I'm just going to trust you. That's where you reach that place where his provision is fully made in your, in your life. It waits on the mountain for those who climb. It waits there for us. Abraham believed God absolutely, and he trusted him when it made no sense. He rose above his fears and his doubts. And in one of the most horrifying stories in all of the scripture, we find one of faith's most important lessons. Will God call you to climb so severe a mountain? Who can know? Who can know? Here's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Am I willing? Is my faith up to the test? You see, he has not called us to the flatlands. Flatland or flatline faith that depends on our own strength and our wisdom. He's called us to climb the mountains where in the end, faith finds its resting place in God's miraculous provision. I've got good news for you. First of all, he's not going to kill you. He has great plans for you. He loves you. He loves you in, in a depth that you cannot even begin to understand. You are safe in his hands. But he wants to know that you're his in your heart. And so if he's called you to step away from the way you're living or to move out of a comfort zone or to take a step that frightens you and you really feel that he's calling you to do it, don't hesitate for a moment. 
not even for a moment. As tough as it may seem, grab hold of a mountaineering faith and go climb that mountain. There is massive spiritual growth waiting for you on top of that mountain. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come to you today in rather difficult message and a difficult challenge. We come to you today, Lord, recognizing the whole backdrop of Jehovah Jireh is about a mountain. On the mount, it will be provided. It's all about a challenge. It's all about difficulty. It's about straining and believing that in the midst of it all, you will be true to your promises. I pray, Lord, that you would develop within us a faith for greater things. Pastor said it just a few moments ago, at least three times, greater things, believing for greater things, greater days, greater things, and greater life, church. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would challenge us in our faith, even if we've just started to follow after you. Help us to understand, Lord, that we can trust you, not just with the mundane little things in our lives. We can trust you in the moments when we are facing the greatest challenges that we could ever know. And there on the mountain, we'll find you faithful. Would you keep your heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment? And I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way. I just, if you feel like the Lord has been speaking to you to either, it's either make a move or to, there's something that needs to be fixed, but it's going to be difficult or a decision that needs to be made. But you feel like you've been just kind of living on the edge of it and it's a big deal, but you know today you've just got to take that step. Would you slip a hand up? I'm not going to embarrass you in any way or call you out, but if that's you, if God, God bless you and you and you, God bless you. God bless you, brother. Someone else? God's spoken to you, and you really feel like he's drawing you to take a big step, and it frightens you. Be honest before God. He knows anyways. God bless you. Father, I pray especially for those who raised a hand today that you would give them peace in their hearts like the faith you put in the heart of Abraham that somehow, somehow, you're going to make a way if they'll simply take the steps you've set before them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.